Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you this morning and we rejoice at the good hand of our God upon our people and upon our church. God, thank you for sustaining our families and thereby thank you for sustaining this church family. Father, we every week rededicate ourselves to the mission of Christ, to the model of making disciples, to the care of our overseas disciples. Lord, we know that in life, parents pay the bills. Lord, we know in making disciples that spiritual parents carry the burden of paying the bills as well. And Lord, I pray for every spiritual parent at Cornerstone that shares that burden, that Lord, you'd open the windows of heaven and bless our families. Lord, even in this time of pandemic, Lord, would you give raises and promotions to our people? Lord, would you give jobs to those few who are looking for a job right now? Lord, would you open opportunities and and promotions and Lord let the wealth of this world flow into the hands of your sons and daughters and Lord we'll know what to do with it we'll dedicate a portion of that back to your kingdom and to your work God bless us and Lord like great Abraham make a blessing out of us let us be a blessing to other people Lord as we open your word this morning teach us the same thoughts you taught your people in the first century Lord let us learn the lessons that we need to learn today about the cost of discipleship and dedication. And Lord, help us to apply them to our own walk today. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let me get to my sermon. And uh, I wanna remind you that uh, Jesus was a master storyteller. Um, you remember even the people that came to arrest him at one point said, never did we hear a person speak like this guy. Uh, he was a master short storyteller. So in this series on short stories, we've been looking at some of the short stories that Jesus told. The short stories typically had one main point. Not everything in the story symbolizes something. It's, it's, they're, they're not written that way. But they're stories designed to emphasize one truth. And the stories are either to get us to do something or to feel something or maybe designed to get us to change the way we think or the way we live our life, maybe to adjust our priorities, and such is the story this morning. I'm going to call your attention this morning to Luke chapter number 14, and before I read the parable of the builder and the warring king, it's kind of a double parable this morning, the builder and the warring king, I want to give you the setting of the story. The setting always matters, the context always matters, and so we learn more about the story when we can go back and see where the story was set. What's happening in the life of Christ? What's happening with the disciples? Where are they at? Who, who are they talking to? So the setting is found uh, in Luke 14, verse number one. Here's what we read in verse number one. One Sabbath, when he went to eat in the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Now that tells you volumes. Jesus is invited into the home and the disciples of a leading Pharisee. Let me reword that. Leading rule keeper, leading rule enforcer. And so Jesus is in the home and the Bible's very clear. Luke said, they're watching him closely. Now I wanna just paraphrase the story and tell you what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen is there's a man who comes into the home of the Pharisee who's all swollen. His body's retaining some kind of fluid. He's got some kind of illness and he's all puffy and swollen abnormally, and he's in misery. And when Jesus encounters this man, Jesus heals the man who is swollen. And in the room, eyebrows are raised and, and murmuring starts because it's the Sabbath day and Jesus has broken the rules in the home of the chief rule enforcer. <laughs> It's not just like committing a crime, but it's like committing a crime in the, in the police station. And so they didn't allow uh, activity on the Sabbath, and they considered Jesus' healing to be unlawful activity, some type of work that wasn't supposed to take place on the Sabbath. But he does it right under their noses and in the very living room of the, the head of the Pharisees. Let me just put it mildly. It was an awkward moment tension begin to build in the room. Everyone's looking at everybody like, what are we going to do about this? What should, you know, what action should be taken against Jesus? 
And as the tension is building and the awkward silence is building, Jesus says this would be another place for a story. So Jesus breaks the silence and begins to tell a, a, a story about an ox uh, falling into a ditch on the Sabbath. And he said to them, if your ox falls into the ditch, all of you would pull your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath. You all recognize that, I'm going to say rules are made to be broken. That would be a bit of a stretch. But Jesus is saying that even you realize there are exceptions to this breaking the Sabbath. And it's never wrong to do right on the Sabbath. And uh, if your animal was suffering, you would have mercy on your animal, even though it's the Sabbath. And I've had mercy on a human being on the Sabbath. And you say, what was the result of his story? Awkward silence, tension building in the room. So you know what Jesus does? He says, this would be a good place for another story. So Jesus tells another story, verses seven through 11. And here's the story. He tells a story about a wedding feast with open seating. Let me be very clear. It's a big wedding feast, but there's no name cards on the tables. You can sit wherever you want. And there are good seats and there are better seats and there are lesser seats. Some seats, I don't know if you've ever uh, been down to the last wire and you're like, man, I really wanted to go to the game or I really wanted to go to the concert. And the only tickets left were like nosebleed. So when you're way up in the upper, or it's that ticket that says, partially obstructed view. And you know you're going to be sitting behind a steel beam when you get there and you're not going to be able to see the action, you know. Or the only cabin that's left on the cruise ship at this late date is partially obstructed view. It means when you throw the curtains open in your uh, berth, all you see is a lifeboat hanging outside your window. No ocean. Yeah. And so anyway, there's open seating at the wedding feast and all the guests begin to come in and then after a little bit, those in charge of the wedding feast come in and reshuffle all of the seating and take some of the lesser uh, status citizens and move them up to the best seats and take some of the people in the best seats and push them down to the lesser seats, take people in box seats and put them in the nosebleed seats, take people from the nosebleed seats and put them down in the luxury suite section. And everybody's like, what in the world is this story about? And there's tension rising in the room. No one is knowing how to respond to Jesus' actions or his stories. And what happens when there's a moment of tension uh, in a group of people is usually somebody will blurt out. Usually something stupid just to break the tension. And so people can start conversing again. But as that awkward silence hangs in the room, in verse 15, we see somebody blurt out to break the silence. And when one of those who reclined at the table heard these things, he shouted out, well, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what that has to do with anything. And I think that's the whole ha-ha moment of the story. You've probably got some drunk guy at the wedding feast or some guy in the Pharisee's house here saying, well, you know, cheers to anybody who gets to heaven and gets to eat bread in the kingdom. I think that's kind of what's happening there. So now Jesus seizes the awkward moment and guess what he's going to do? You're right. He's going to tell a third story. Three in a row happened. Boom, boom, boom. Because of the awkward tension that's been created in the room. And here's the third story. Luke 14, 16. A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come because everything is now ready. And without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. I see how they plow, man. I ask that I be excused. Verse 20. And another one said, I just got married and I'm unable to come. Verse 21. So the servant came back and reported these things to the master. Then in anger, the master told his servant, you go out quickly into the streets and into the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. You just go round up all the untouchables and bring them in here. Verse 22, master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. 
I filled the house with these unwanted people, and still there is room. Verse 23, then the master told the servant, okay, let's fill it up then. Go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. What's the response to Jesus' story? More awkward tension because the people in the room know that the story's been spoken against them. Those people who thought they were going to God's feast are not going to get in and a whole nother group of people are going to get in because in order to get into God's feast, you have to respond affirmatively to God. You have to say, yeah, the invitation has gone out. Listen, that's why I believe whosoever will can get saved. The ball is in your court. The invitation has gone out. God is now standing by waiting for you to give your assent to his means of salvation, and he will let you into the feast. But what we learn from the story is that many are too busy. Married a wife, bought a new car, I mean, a yoke of a five yoke of oxen, uh, I've got some new land. I, I, I mean, I got to go to the deer lease. We've got softball this Sunday. I mean, I've got I, 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 the lake house needs some, some attention. I, I, we have a lot of things going on in our lives, Lord. We're, we're very, very busy and we cannot participate. Now, this is an tension getting story in our own lives as well as in the lives of these who heard it for the first time. The story serves as a warning for those who think they're in good with God, for those who think they're insiders, and the story is clearly challenging those who think they are God's people to rethink your position, to rethink your priorities. Let, let me ask it to you in some assessment ways this morning. Uh, what about your life is crowding out your walk with God? What, what has you so busy that you can't say yes to God? I think if Jesus were telling the story in our living room this morning, it would kind of come out this way. What has you so busy, Bobby Harrell? What has you so busy, Leah, David, Susan, Jeff? What's got you so busy that you can't say yes to my invitation to come and fellowship with me? The, the parable is a warning that the two biggest obstacles of discipleship are possessions and family. The two biggest obstacles to discipleship are possessions and family. But now let me say it conversely. On the other hand, if you make being Christ's disciple your first priority in life, your possessions and your family become the biggest opportunities to make disciples. At Cornerstone, we constantly say discipleship begins in our home. Uh, we don't want to go make disciples of strangers we don't know while not discipling our own family members. Discipleship begins at home, and that's how we build strong kingdom families uh, in our church. And we urge our parents in parenting classes, look at your children as disciples. We constantly urge those we give marriage counseling to, look at your spouse as a disciple. It'll change the relationship for the better. So our possessions, our homes, our, our assets, our, our family relationships, these become the keys of discipleship for us. Notice that the parable has a sense of urgency. Go get them now. Tell them to come in right now. Go quickly, servant, and gather people for my feast. There is a sense of urgency, but there's also a sense of joy that accompanies the lives of those who follow Christ. I want to be very clear. God has offered you through Jesus Christ two things very clearly in the book of John are articulated. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come to give you an abundant life, life and life more abundantly. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, I've come to give you eternal life, everlasting life. Two great offers are made to us through Jesus Christ. Everlasting life to come. But right now, he offers us a life worth living, an abundant life. 
Both of these are big time gifts, gifts worthy of celebrating. Listen, an abundant, satisfying, enriched, purpose-filled life full of joy and love right now, that's what the whole world seems to want. And Christ is offering it as a fringe benefit of those who follow him as disciples. Plus you get everlasting life. And God is pleading with those in the story really to look past the superficial things that are dominating your life and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a made-up story. We get that. It's a story Jesus made up to become a teaching moment. And in the story, we don't see the characters who said no getting a second chance to respond. But for you who are listening this morning, the reality is very different for you. If you've been excluded from the kingdom of God because previously you did not respond, if you've been excluded from the kingdom of God because previously, previously you were just maybe neglectful and you, you didn't answer the invitation of Jesus Christ, today you no longer have to stay excluded. Today is your day to say yes to Jesus and join the kingdom of God. You say, well, pastor, I've said no before. That doesn't mean you have to say no today. Open your heart today and say yes to the son of God. Say yes to his invitation to enter into the feast of God. It's a metaphor. I mean, think of it as entering into a relationship with God and receiving Christ as your Lord and savior and being a part of his kingdom today. Just like in the story, the invitation was an open one. It went to everyone. Come to my supper, come to my supper. They were out gathering undesirables and, and, and people off the street. Still there is room. Well, then go get some more and compel them to come in. Listen, there was urgency and there was an open invitation for everyone to attend this great feast. And I want you to know that today, there is still an open invitation for everyone hearing my voice to enter into the kingdom of God. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus and repent of your sins and come to him and he will assume the position as Lord of your life and bring you into his kingdom. Before this service concludes, I'm gonna give you a chance to pray and ask Christ to come into your heart. Stay with me for a few minutes and we'll get to that very shortly. Okay, now everything I've told you is just the background. We haven't got to the real story yet. Those three stories are the setting stories. That sets up the tension that's happening. It sets up the controversy that Christ has created. And now Jesus tells the parable of the builder and warring king. Luke 14, verse 27, let me read it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or, second scenario, what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the ones who come against him with 20,000. In other words, they're counting the cost of human lives here. If not, while the other is still afar off, he sends a delegation. In other words, if you don't think you can win the war, send a delegation and ask, negotiate terms of peace. 33, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a challenging parable. You've been told two big things here. Except you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Except you renounce your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. So I think we can really quickly figure out what the point of Jesus' story is. Here is the point of the story. Jesus requires total commitment from his disciples. This is what he's saying. If you want to follow me, I require total commitment. Now, when I say to you, for example, this morning, you can receive Jesus Christ as your savior. You can. 
The gift of eternal life is free to everyone who will call upon and receive Jesus Christ. But I don't want you to think there are no terms and conditions. There are terms and conditions. If you're going to call Jesus Savior, then you must call him Lord. And Lord means that Jesus will require of you total commitment. He will save you, and that's free. It's not of works. It's all by his grace. It's a free gift. But once he saves you, he will expect from you total commitment to be his disciples. So I want to ask you an assessment question, which no one can answer but you. Is following Christ and making disciples the first priority of my life? I think that would give us some good reflection and assessment this morning. Is following Christ, following Christ is another way of saying being his disciple, is being his disciple and making disciples the first priority of my life. Let me very quickly give you some observations about what it means to be a disciple. In other words, what are the requirements for discipleship? And in this brief moment together, I won't be able to articulate maybe all that Christ would ask you to be as his disciple, surely. But I can give you three or four things very quickly that stand out from the, from the biblical text as requirements for discipleship. A disciple puts Christ before other interests. This is a requirement. If you're going to be his disciple, he's going to ask you not to put him third, fourth, fifth, sixth place in your life. He's going to ask you to prioritize him as the Lord of your life, and therefore his interests come above self-interest. His mission comes before my own ambition, before my own interest. Let me give you a Bible verse that will reinforce this. Luke 9.23 says that he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I don't think in this wonderful country in which we live, that you're going to be nailed to crosses. I don't think that's in your future. I don't think that's where we're going. I don't think you're gonna see that. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, uh, I saw one day over near the church, a man dragging a cross down the street uh, as a way to make a statement of some kind. I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross. He didn't mean go out into the garage this afternoon and the work shed and build a cross, drag it to work tomorrow, and that'll make you a really good disciple. No, it's going to make you a freak show and people are going to wonder if you've lost your mind. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he, he's talking about something very different. He's saying, make sure that my I am Lord of your life and there's going to be a probably a cost involved in this. Be willing to take it up and follow me. Uh, let me give you another observation. A disciple is committed to Christ's teachings. I think that goes without saying. Here we are, all of us right now with open Bibles gathered around the word of God. Why? Because as followers of Christ, his word is essential to our development and our transformation. And as disciples, we're committed to the teachings of Christ. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. So it's not only a proof of our discipleship, but it's something very demonstrable. We are people of the word and we abide in the word. We read the word. We try to live by the word. We study the word. We're people of Christ's teachings. And uh, maybe someday I'll give you a book list. I think since we've been on this shutdown uh, I think personally, I've read about 40 books somewhere in that range since the month of March. And uh, uh, I love to read and I, I, some of it is fiction. A whole lot of it are theological books and, and study books and, and, and things like that. But I've read probably 40 books since the month of March. Maybe I'll publish some of the titles that I've read. Some, some are on women, men, relationships in the church. I'm just looking at a stack of them here across the room. But one of the books that's really been a blessing to me is a book that I wish I'd had 30 years ago. And it's a book I intend to put into every every of our disciples' hands overseas. Uh, it's written by Gordon Fee and a partner of his, and it's how, how to get the most out of reading your Bible. That book is fantastic. 
Uh, I'm working with Miss Leah right now to see if we can get a module uh, on this just to go through this book, a reading club to go through this book together, because it's important not only to say we're people of the word, but we have to learn again. Let's re let's relearn all of us together as a church at Cornerstone. Let's make a commitment to learn how to read the Bible again. It's a very unusual book. And in some ways it is literature. It is poetry. It is a history book. Uh, there are narratives, there are biographies, uh, and it reads like literature, but more than literature. And so I, I'm, you're going to see me very passionate, and Pastor David very passionate in the coming year about talking to you about how to read the Bible freshly again and how to understand what, what of the Old Testament applies to you and what doesn't. How to understand that none of the Bible was written to you unless your name is Theophilus or something like that, none of it was written to you. Yet all of it was written for you. Uh, God wanted you to have it because you're going to learn about God, even though it's not direct, addressed directly to you. Anyway, I don't want to get down a rabbit trail this morning, but we're going to really challenge you to be people of the word. And here's why. Because disciples are committed to Christ's teachings. And we need to know how to learn from the scripture freshly again. A disciple is committed to evangelism. This is a word that scares, I think, a lot of Christians because they can see themselves, you know, with open Bible standing up in front of a group of people trying to sway them with profound Pauline arguments, you know, and legal uh, theses to sway them over to Christ. You know, it rarely looks like that. We tell you what evangelism normally looks like. Evangelism normally looks like just speaking from your heart to someone you have a relationship with. Usually not to strangers. That's usually the least form, effective form of evangelism. But talking to a friend, a college roommate, a, a, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, a, a co-laborer. It's usually about talking to someone you know and God opens some supernatural spiritual moment for you. And that person begins to engage you in a spiritual conversation. And from your heart, you can tell them, here's who I was before I got saved. Here's what happened to me. And here's who I am. And you can just tell your story. That becomes the most powerful way to evangelize. And at Cornerstone, we have modules to help you tell your story, to learn how to tell your story. If you are yearning to know how to tell your story, reach out to us. We'll teach you how to share your story, where it becomes second nature, just to be able to tell your story. Because God's people are committed to evangelism. Let me show you why. Because in Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And again, he's not saying you need to become a preacher. Don't be distracted by the preach word. It just means proclaim is all it means. Proclaim the gospel is the good news. Proclaim the good news. And that happens one relationship at a time. Uh, listen, a disciple loves others. This is a mark of discipleship and maybe one of the greatest marks of discipleship. The quickest way you can discover if someone is a disciple of Jesus Christ, I think is found in these verses. John 13, verse 34. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. And by this, will everyone know that you're my disciples? If you love one another. Well, I think that could not be clear, could it? Christ wants us to love others as he loved us and deal with others as he deals with us. And that is the badge. I mean, that is the high watermark of what it means to be a disciple. Let me show you one more. One more quick observation. A disciple has a deep abiding relationship with Christ that bears fruit. It's a fruit bearing relationship. So John 15 is that great vine and branches analogy that we read in scripture. Let me read verse five for you. Jesus said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. 
And just a few verses later in verse 8, here's what he said. My father is glorified by this, colon. Whatever follows modifies. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, listen, at Cornerstone, we say it's not just about being disciples. It's about disciples who make disciples. That's the fruit-bearing part of our mission statement. We believe that God is calling you to be a disciple and he's calling you to be a disciple that once you reach some maturity, you are going to make your own batch of disciples. And Jesus is being very clear in these comments. If you're unwilling to bear fruit, unwilling to proclaim the good news, if you're unwilling to take up your cross, if you're unwilling to be people of the word, if you're unwilling to do these things and make these commitments, Christ is very clear. You cannot be my disciple. Maybe you're wondering this morning, Pastor, if I'm not willing to give total commitment to Christ, can I just continue to pursue my own version of a non-committed Christianity? Can I just pursue my own version that requires no commitment? Maybe discipleship, Pastor, is not the only version of Christianity. Is there something else I can pursue other than discipleship? What you're really asking is you're really asking, is discipleship for everyone? Now, I want to kind of get at the root of why modern Christianity is asking this question. Why would modern Christianity ask, is discipleship for everyone? The very reason a believer might ask this question is a, due to the false narrative of Christianity that's been perpetrated upon this modern generation. There is a false view of Christianity, and that false view is that there are two tiers to Christianity. There is one tier for the really committed Christians, and there's another tier for those who are engaged in other aspects of a busy life. And both are acceptable and both are good and both are okay with Jesus and with the scripture. That is a false narrative of Christianity. I think what's being subtly taught in America is that there's one tier of Christianity for the really committed people. And there's another acceptable tier of Christianity for those who have high paying and demanding careers. There's one tier of Christianity for the uber committed, and there's another tier of Christianity for those who have large extended families that like together all the time. And we're very busy. I, the false narrative is that there's one tier of Christianity for the highly committed, and there's another tier for those who are wealthy and have lots of possessions. Their service for God is not discipleship, it's something different. There is a false view of Christianity. And so what has happened is the church has tried not to offend anyone. And they've allowed this uh, uncommitted Christianity to continue to believe that discipleship is not required for everyone. But the Bible knows nothing about this teaching. There is no basis for a tiered system within Christianity to be found in the scripture. One is either a follower of Christ or one is not. It's just that simple. So the result of this false narrative is that the American churches became characterized by a message that everyone is to believe on Jesus, but that same church pretends that Jesus makes no demands on the lives of the believers. Yes, everyone should believe, but only a few people have to be really committed because Christ makes no demands on the lives of all believers. And in this new model of Christianity, the more believers, the better, the more Sunday attenders, the better, and the pastor should not speak about Christ demanding anything from us. Certainly we should not proclaim a message of demands of discipleship. Pastor, that would be counterintuitive to our marketing strategy. I mean, who wants to come to a church to hear that Jesus wants to be the Lord of your life and tell you what to do? Well, let me circle back. You can't call him Savior without calling him Lord. And you can't call him Lord and say no. 
You can't say, no, Lord, and then fill in the blanks because you don't say no to the Lord. That's the whole point. Paul said we are his servants and we are your servants for Christ's sake. Uh, Jesus' invitation is open for everyone to be his disciples and everyone should be his disciples. This is the point of these open-ended stories. You have an open invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God and you need to know that being a kingdom Christian is synonymous with a call to discipleship. When we say come to Christ for salvation, we mean come and be his disciple. When we say come to him for salvation and eternal life, we are saying synonymously, come to him, let him be the Lord of your life and you follow him as his disciple. So let me ask you our last assessment thought this morning. It's a very simple one and it's this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, this is what he's challenging his generation with. There are some pursuits in life that require us to be extremely committed in order to be successful. There are, let me say it again, there are many pursuits in this life that if you're going to be successful, you have to be extremely committed to that pursuit. And we are, I'm not saying just in the religious world, we are constantly in this life being asked to evaluate whether the cost is worth attaining the objective. It's something you wrestle with constantly. I want a new house. I want to build a house. It's Jesus illustration. You know what you have to ask yourself? Is the cost of building the house worth the fact that I want this house? Okay. The victory at war. I want to win the war. Okay. Do the assessment then. Is it worth 10,000 lives on the battlefield to you? Those are the weighty decisions that kings had to make. Is it going to be worth sacrificing thousands of citizens of the kingdom to win the war? In some cases, they said it's not worth it. Let's negotiate peace. In some cases, they said it's worth it. Let's go. And, and they paid ultimate prices for those victories. This morning, we each have to make our own assessment of what pursuits we're willing to give ourselves completely to. Let, let me show you a couple of pictures and let's, let's see if we can really get into where the thoughts of the lesson are. What do you think the cost of this picture is? Listen, for this to be true, I'm telling you there's a cost and you know there's a cost. What's the cost to win that right there? I don't know how many viewers this morning have an eight pack. And I'll tell you why most of us don't have an eight pack because there's an incredible cost to be paid to have those abs right there. And it's a cost you pay in the kitchen, in the dining room. It's a cost you pay in the gym. It's a cost you pay in scheduling your time, dedication, commitment, discipline. Let me ask you a second question. Do you think it's worth it? Maybe that's not a fair question because none of us have an eight pack, so it's not <laughs> worth it to us. Uh, back up one. Yeah. Do you... Do you <laughs> do you think these two people think it's worth it? Yeah. I think I think they think so. And they did that because they paid the price and they thought the price was worth that level of fitness. Now, do you resent them or do you admire them? Remember last week's sermon. <laughs> Be careful about resenting people falsely. You know, I don't resent them. I admire them. I think it's cool. Because it also models that you and I could do that if we were dedicated to do it and we were willing to pay the price to it. Let's look at another picture. Let's look at another picture. Okay. What is the cost of this? For this to be true, what cost was paid here? And I'm going to guess it wasn't just a cost she paid, although she's the primary focus here, but it's probably a cost her friends made and a cost her parents made, a cost her brothers and sisters. You don't achieve this on your own necessarily, but she paid for that moment in dollars. I mean, there's a hundred thousand dollars right there, but there's also a different kind of cost that was paid. This is not going out every night with friends. This is hitting the books. This is getting to the library and studying. This is reading my material. This is being diligent in class. This is being studious 
being a good student, all of these things. That's the cost that she paid in order to wrap her fingers around that diploma, which represents a whole, a whole stepping stone, a milestone in her life. So now I want to ask you, was it worth it? I think it was worth it. Let me ask it a different way. Do you think she thinks it was worth it? I think from her expression, you would say she's stoked that she reached this point in her life and whatever sacrifice she made, she says it was worth it to get that diploma. Let, let's try it a different way then. What do you think this costs? I'm talking about the labor and delivery charge and the nurses and there is a cost there. I don't know what that is, six to $10,000 probably. And that's if you don't have to go to NICU for some days, you know, uh, if you don't have a premium or something like that. But just beyond what the hospital bill is, what's the cost to bring a child into this world and dedicate, this requires complete devotion now. You have to give yourself totally to this to be a parent. Do you think it's worth it? The price you have to pay? Yeah, I think it's worth it. Do you think she thinks it's worth it? That picture just oozes contentment and joy right there. Serenity, bliss, joy. Yeah, she thinks it's worth it. I, I see that woman holding that baby and I think she prayed for a child. God gave her a healthy child. And she's holding that baby thinking I'm the luckiest mother in the world right now. I have a beautiful baby in my arms. Yeah, it's worth it. Let me show you another picture. What's the cost of that? To be able to take this photo, what is the cost of this moment? Most of these young ladies gave up their childhood, literally gave up their childhood to live their lives in a gymnasium, uh, strengthening their bodies and working on their flexibility and uh, perfecting their craft. It cost them their childhood of dedication to represent our country and to be able to hold up that gold medal and say, Team USA is the number one in the world. And we did this for our country there's a high cost associated with this photo right here. And I think we all recognize that. Oh, was it worth it? Let me ask you, do you think they think it was worth it? I think they think it was worth it because they'll forever be known. They'll forever be known as the gold medalist at the Olympics, as the gold medal winning gymnastics, they'll forever be known. Their mark in history is stamped in Delaby because they paid a price that they said it will be worth it if we can achieve this. You got another one? What's the cost of that? That's literally your salvation being paid for. Purchased, not with silver and gold, Peter said, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish, sacrificed for our sins, dying in substitution for you and I. What's the cost of our sins? That's the cost right there. That's the price being paid by our Savior and our Lord and our substitute. Let me ask you this. Was it worth it? Were you worth it? Let me ask it a different way. Do you think he thinks it's worth it? This is the creator. And he thought you were worth it. You say, well, who is he dying for? For the sins of the whole world. So that he could make good on his words. Whosoever believeth in me shall not perish but have eternal life so that Paul could make good on the claim of Christ. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there's a high cost associated with many pursuits. And if you intend to pursue Christ, there's a cost. He wants your total devotion. And God's people are to be characterized by more than just 
we're people who believe. Yeah, we believe the Bible. Yeah, we believe in going. There's more to it than that. We're more than just people who believe. We are people who follow Christ. We are people. It's a way of saying we are people who put belief into actions. We are committed to living as the disciples of Jesus Christ. We have made a decision to follow him. We have made a decision to let the Holy Spirit transform us through a process of discipleship. And we have made a decision that we're going to take up our cross. We're going to take up the mission of Jesus Christ as long as we are alive on this earth. That requires total dedication. To be successful, Christ and his mission must have the first priority in your life. So let me wrap it up this morning. Kind of put a bow around everything we've talked about. Who would build a building without making cost calculations as to what the building would cost? The answer, no one. No sane person would do that. Okay? Who would go out to face an attacking king without doing some analysis on whether you could win or not? Who would do that? No one. No one would do that. And no one should follow Jesus Christ without assessing the demands that he's going to make upon your life. No one should say, I'm going to follow Christ unless you understand there are demands that are going to be made upon your life. You may be thinking, well, pastor, I just want to be loved and forgiven and go to heaven. I don't want to commit to all this other stuff. That's a false narrative of Christianity that doesn't really exist in the scripture. Listen to the words of Jesus. Luke 14, 33, in the same way, therefore, everyone who does not renounce his possessions cannot be my disciple. You know what he said a few verses earlier? If you will not take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Let me give you the assessment question in closing. Is following Christ and making disciples the first priority of my life? That is our challenge this morning. We've been locked down now in some semblance, at least since the month of March. It's been a very unusual time for all of us. Uh, as we are getting our leadership now in place, as we start thinking what the coming days look like, we still don't know when we're going to be back together in a building worshiping face to face. But it doesn't mean that discipleship needs to stop. It doesn't mean that ministry needs to stop. It doesn't mean that our prayers have stopped. It doesn't mean that worship has stopped. Everything just continues on. We just don't have face to face in person worship right now. In the coming weeks, we're going to be challenging you. Let's get discipleship going again. Let's re-engage. Uh, we are, we have been working through all of these months with Zoom and with different technologies. We have coached other churches now uh, who are successfully using Zoom for all of their discipleship groups right now. They have people joining those discipleship groups virtually and some are joining from all over the world, their discipleship groups. We are about to start back up and, and really make a push to re-engage in this matter. You're going to have to make a personal decision and you're going to have to say, I'm all in for Jesus Christ. And without your willingness to pursue Christ, no changes are going to happen in your life. But once you say, Christ, I'm making a decision to follow you. I'm opening up my life to you to receive all of the blessings that you're offering me. Expect your life to be flooded with love, joy, peace, goodness, power, transformation, contentment, because those are the fruits that flow from the Holy Spirit when you commit your, Christ, your life completely to Christ. And then you get the cherry on top. Not only do you get to be a disciple, but you get the reward of seeing your disciples in the kingdom of God. Paul said, what is our hope and what is our joy and what is our crown of rejoicing are not even you in the presence of our Lord at his coming. That's going to be the cherry on top for us. This morning, Christ calls for commitment, for total dedication. And that's what it means to be a disciple. And that is the story of Jesus Christ.
I want to pray with you this morning if you've never received Christ as your Savior. That invitation still stands from God to you. He said, if you would believe in your heart the Lord on the Lord Jesus Christ and you would confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, will be saved. And this morning, if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, pray that thing out loud, make it a verbal assent, Jesus Christ will save you this morning. And will bring you in to be a part of his kingdom. And you will call him Lord from this day forward. Your life will be transformed. You'll never be the same. It doesn't matter if you've said no before. Say yes today. If you're ready to do it, I want you to pray with me right now. Let me lead you and you follow along. Let's pray together. Father, I bow before you today and I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I know you already know that but I need to tell you that I know it too. And I need a savior. I can't save myself. And Lord, I know that you, Jesus Christ, are the savior of the world. You are God who came down in a human form and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. I believe this. And I'm speaking now to a risen Savior and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me of all of my sin. And Lord, I ask you to come into my heart and to save me and to be my Lord and Savior for all of eternity. You're my King from this day forward. And I am a citizen of your kingdom. Thank you for adopting me and bringing me into your kingdom and calling me your very own. I claim this on the authority of the word of God and I receive you as my savior today. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and begin my life transformation. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning and you believed in your heart on Jesus Christ, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you to reach out and let us get a Bible into your hands and let someone pray with you and show you maybe what the next steps are for your Christian journey as you say yes to discipleship. All you have to do is just reach out to us and send us a text and just tell us, I received Christ as my savior or I prayed with the pastor today to, to make Christ my Lord. However you wanna word that, just reach out to us. Let us know what decision you made today. We wanna rejoice with you in what God has done in your life. We love you, Jesus loves you, and you have a place at Cornerstone. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. God bless you.